the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Well, Thanksgiving time is here, and of course, for a lot of people, that means gathering of friends and family and enjoying a fantastic meal. Certainly traditional on American tables this time of year is the Thanksgiving turkey. But oddly enough, a lot of people somehow get very intimidated by the notion of cooking a turkey. I've often told friends, if you think of it like a big chicken, it probably won't be quite as scary. Joining us now is the butterball turkey expert, Jan Allen. Jan, happy Thanksgiving to you. Thank you. I wish you the same. Is that a fairly good way to kind of uh, distill at least part of the, the, the mystique behind cooking a turkey that while a lot of people think get intimidated by it because maybe they don't do it every day or because it's so large, that at the end of the day, it's really just a big chicken. <laughs> exactly. You are right. And that's why Butterball's here because we're the secret weapon in the kitchen. We want to help that host. Get that turkey on the table and everything just perfect for that holiday meal. And we're here to help them host like a boss this Thanksgiving. It can be kind of stressful, so um, all they have to do is get in touch with us and we'll help them get through all that guesswork and make it nice and easy for them. Let's walk through some of the basic steps for listeners. I know that there's a a few must-dos and a few never-dos. One of the big thing that seems to be the most initial concern, if a lot of people purchase a turkey that maybe has been flash-frozen, there's always concern about, well, how do I go about defrosting a turkey? And, And certainly there's a right way to do it and a very wrong way to do it. Walk us through those steps. Um, that is the number one question we have every year is how do I defrost my turkey and how long? The rule of thumb for thawing a turkey in the refrigerator, which is the easiest way to do it, you just put it in the original wrapper on a tray in the refrigerator and allow one day in the refrigerator for every four pounds of turkey. Um, after it's thawed, if you if it thaws a day or two too too soon, it's not a problem because you can hold it three or four days once it's thawed before roasting it. Also, if you just bought your turkey or you didn't start thawing it soon enough, you can cold water defrost it. If you need to do that, it takes 30 minutes per pound to submerged in cold water. So a turkey that's 12 pounds would take six hours. It's a little bit more labor-intense because you do have to change the water every half hour and flip the turkey over. Once it's done defrosting, put it again in the refrigerator on a tray until you're ready to roast it. And, of course, folks should stay away from crazy ideas like trying to microwave it and things of this sort to to speed along that process, shouldn't they? 
Right. You don't really want to microwave it because it, it's going to start cooking because it does heat. And if you do have to do that, you want to do it with just a small mic, uh, turkey, not a large one. And you want to, you need to cook it immediately after after defrosting it. You can't just uh, put it back in the refrigerator for uh, for roasting later. So it is best to always do it in a cold method. Now, Janet, we talk about um, preparation of the turkey. That, of course, is probably uh, three-quarters of the task here, making sure that it's properly defrosted. Um, uh, folks all, sometimes, and, and you'll always know a novice when as they're slicing into the turkey, there's a surprise inside. They've forgotten the giblets. They've forgotten the neck. So as we prepare the turkey for roasting, what are some of the basic tips that we need to be mindful of? When you're ready to roast the turkey, you would take it to the sink, open the package, and then remove the neck, which is inside the body cavity, and then put your hand in the neck cavity, and there'll be a little bag with the giblets, and remove those as well. Um, if you're going to stuff your turkey, now would be the time to stuff it. But first, you, I forgot to mention, you do want to drain the juices from the turkey. There will be some juices from it thawing. And then pat it dry with paper towels. Put it in a shallow pan that's about two to three inches deep, on a roast rack so that it's sitting above the drippings that will come out as it cooks. And then stuff it if you desire. You don't have to, but you can. Um, brush it with vegetable oil and put a meat thermometer in the thickest portion of the thigh, not touching the bone. If you don't have a meat thermometer that's oven safe, then use an instant read thermometer at the end to check temperature because an instant read does not stay in the oven. You will ruin the thermometer if you leave it in the oven. Brush the whole turkey with vegetable oil before you put it into the oven. That keeps the skin moist and uh, keeps the meat below drying out, too. And then roast it uncovered at 325 degrees. The last third of the roasting time, take a small piece of foil and put that over the top of the breast, and that will reflect the heat away as the rest of it continues to cook. When you check your thermometer, it should be 185 in the thigh. If you're just doing a breast or if you want to check the breast, that would be 170. And if you did stuff the turkey, the stuffing would be 165. If all those temperatures are met, remove the turkey and let it stand for 15 or 20 minutes before carving. That lets the juices set up so that you can get nice, even slices. And I guess there should always be mindful of the fact that this is a long process based on the size of the bird. And what do you recommend in terms of, of a temperature to the number of minutes? We don't have a minutes per pound because it's not proportionate. But, for instance, an 18 to 22-pound turkey unstuffed is going to take you three and a half to four hours. If you stuff it, allow an extra hour. Um, if you have a large, really large turkey, like 26 pounds, on stuff that's going to take about five hours. So it's not a lot more time um, for, a, for a bigger turkey than, you know, an, an average size one. But we have all the time on our packages as well as on our website. Our website is butterball.com, and we have a wealth of information there, including um, videos on how to stuff, how to carve, where to put the thermometer, all those things that you're not quite sure of you can actually see through the video, which is great. We also have tips. We have a calculator to determine how much to buy if you're not sure what, how much you need, and tons of recipes. You can also email us from our website or do a live chat. Uh, we have a wealth of information there. This year what's new is that we also um, have partnered with Amazon, and anybody that has an Alexa device, 
they can just say, Alexa, ask Butterball, and you can answer too many questions without even lifting a finger. So that's wonderful. Well, isn't that neat? And, and once you, your, your hands are all wet with, uh, with stuffing and everything else, that's, uh, that's real handy. Uh, you mentioned another key important thing that a lot of folks forget, and that is that uh, you, you don't just race in the minute you pull it out of the oven to begin carving. You really need to let the, the, the turkey rest for a while, don't you? Exactly. That's, that's how you get the even slices. If you start carving right away, sometimes it tends to shred apart. And um, you don't want that to happen. You can't get nice slices that way. Another thing is make sure you have a nice sharp knife. If you have a dull knife, that's going to give you some problems when you're carving, too. It's very challenging to, to slice it without a sharp knife. I don't know how many folks still use them, but I've always preferred using an electric carving knife that just seems to cut through the turkey so much nicer. They do work very well, yes. I, I use one sometimes, too, because I have one, too. If folks want to get more information, again, uh, Butterball.com, you'll find a plethora of information, videos, as Jan mentioned. And again, with the Alexa device, if you're in middle process and you forgot a step or want to get more information, just ask Butterball and you can get uh, more insight so that your turkey tomorrow will be absolutely perfect and delicious. And everybody around the table will think you've been doing it for years. Jan Allen, thanks so much for the time. Again, folks can get more information to cook the perfect bird this Thanksgiving, go to Butterball.com. That's Butterball.com. And our thanks to the Butterball turkey expert, Jan Allen, for those tips. And Jan, a very happy Thanksgiving to you. Thank you. Don't forget that you can also call us at 1-800-BUTTERBALL if that's the way you prefer to reach us. All right. 1-800-BUTTERBALL or online at Butterball.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Any cursory view of the evening news or look at what's trending on Twitter or, for that matter, uh, gaining likes on Facebook tells you a lot about what's going on in our culture today. And, And so, too, I think, can the crime rate, divorce, marriage statistics, even church attendance, for that matter. It all points to a core shift in our society its values, and as a result, where we stand as individuals as much as a nation on many of today's so-called hot-button issues. You know the issues. Abortion, gay marriage, the environment, politics in the church, on and on the list goes. Perhaps today, unlike never before, one thing we can agree on, and that is there's very little agreement on many of these issues, either inside or, for that matter, outside of the church. Well, what kind of a position should we stand How should the church articulate where we stand? And sadly, today, oftentimes, the debate is not how to articulate where we stand, but whether or not we need to take a stand at all. Joining me, a man that needs no real introduction. He's pastored a church or two, written a book or two, even been on the radio once or twice. He's Chip Ingram, senior pastor of Venture Christian Church and speaker on Living on the Edge. The new book, Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. And Chip, always great to have you on the show. Craig, good to uh, talk to you personally and, and great to be uh, on KFAX. And... Boy, isn't it scary what we see going on today? And, and you know, that, that old song, uh, anything goes, so, uh, you know, what's uh, black today is white today, what's good today is bad today, and uh, anything goes. And that certainly seems to be the trend. Sadly, though, that mentality has, has crept from the impact of the culture into impacting the church. And now, as I say, we, we don't debate how we should go about articulating 
the stand that we have on certain key issues, but rather we fight each other as to whether or not we even need to take a stand. Yeah, that's the thesis of this book. This book isn't about culture wars. It's not about blaming, you know, Hollywood or the educational system or the government. This book is really addressed to us inside the church who say we love Christ. We unashamedly believe the Bible's God's word, that, you know, we believe that uh, the second person of the Godhead uh, left heaven, was born of a virgin, uh, lived a perfect life, paid for our sins on the cross, died, rose again the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and gave us this amazing mission to declare to all the world that our sins have been forgiven by what he did at the cross, and it's the gospel, it's the good news, and that inside of that, then, a new life always begets a, uh, a new life change. And so, you know, that's my concern, is that Christians don't live like Christians, and part of it is ignorance, and part of it is, you know, as I talk about in the book, uh, so much of those hot topics are really symptoms and underneath, whether it's abortion or human sexuality or cohabitation, adultery, fornication, sexual morality uh, was rampant in the first century. And it was a strong challenge as believers came out of that lifestyle. And the same uh, with regard to their, their challenges politically. I mean, Rome was the power. Caesar wasn't just the emperor. He was God. And to not worship him was to be an atheist. And, and so, you know, I think we're just returning to a day where... Uh, Christianity is going to be a lot more like the first century, so how do we winsomely, lovingly uh, declare the truth by what we say and by what we do? And I think we need to bring a lot more light than heat, and this talks about how do we do that inside the church first before we export it. And of course, one of the big challenges here, Chip, is the fact that it, 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 at the core is oftentimes not just a matter of how do we go about declaring the truth, but how do we go about arriving at what the truth is? Now, certainly from a I'll say a conservative um, um, viewpoint from a Christian conservative viewpoint. We understand that that God's word is the ultimate and final arbiter of truth. But it's sad today because, you know, when I grew up uh, 150 years ago, uh, we knew that truth existed. We knew that there was an absolute truth, absolutely. And today we've gotten into this paradigm shift where now the debate is not what truth is, but that there is not just the truth, but a truth. There's your truth and my truth, and it's it's all wrapped up in this so-called uh, moral relativism as today. Well, one of the things I do in the book, I had uh, the privilege in my journey of, um, I, I draw a, a little picture. I just came back from a book tour, did about, I literally got to take the pulse of evangelical Christianity from the north, Michigan, as far south as Fort Lauderdale, the middle, Dallas-Fort Worth, Atlanta, and west coast. And, um, you know, I wanted to get everything down to one picture, so I had this slide made of an iceberg, if people can imagine an iceberg, and above it, the iceberg of the symptoms. And the big symptom is sexual immorality, whether that's abortion or cohabitation or um, homosexuality. And then politics is uh, certainly a live issue, and, and then the, the whole environmental issues. And what I did is, that's above, that's 10%, and those are the symptoms. And right underneath that, under the waterline, it really, what you talked about, the real issue is, um, is, is what's true, and is it relative or is it absolute? And, uh, you know, I wrote my thesis at West Virginia University on the philosophical basis of teaching ethics. In other words, is there a right, is there a wrong? And uh, I do a little work there to help people see that in the last 50 years, plus or minus, think of this, in the last 50 years, the amazing rapid change in our culture, uh, we have literally turned upside down, I'm talking about inside the church, 
4,000 years of biblical morality. So, I mean, in, in, the, in the decade of the 50s, uh, sexual immorality, even in the culture, was about uh, 2 to 4% girls and boys by their senior year of high school. It's 80 and 90% today. 30% of evangelical teens believe same-sex relationships are okay. These are in Bible-teaching churches, like, like where I'm at. And about 34 35% of uh, 18 to 29-year-olds in our churches, I'm not talking about you know, out there, um, are either cohabitating or having casual sex. And basically it's, you know, I don't feel like that command about sexual purity really applies to me. So the issue is really those are the symptoms. It's what's true. And that whole journey of existentialism that brought us to our current sort of pluralism, underneath that at the bottom of the iceberg is exactly what you hit on. It's scripture. Is it the final authority, or is it just culturally interpreted? I have to wonder, you know, some would, would, would then ponder, well, what's transpired here that down through the years, and particularly in this sort of fast track over the last um, couple of generations, what's happened to change our thinking? Then, of course, maybe the bigger, broader argument is, have we simply changed our thinking or ceased to think entirely? Well, I think what happens is our youth and, um, you know, remember remember when existentialism in the 60s, a lot of people listening were going, oh, yeah, if it feels good, do it. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Uh, I have my truth, you have yours. I'm okay, you're okay. Well, well, when that began to, you know, that, that turned into the sexual revolution of the 70s, the greed generation of the 80s, the me generation of the 90s, and then it got full-blown where after 30 to 40 years in academia, it went full-blown to where pluralism has gone from every opinion is okay to anyone who dares say this is right and this is wrong is intolerant and i think we need to understand that um, pounding the table with people who understand and look at truth completely differently is a, is a no-win proposition we're gonna have to demonstrate the gospel in fresh ways we're gonna have to love people one of the big movements in the bay right now that i'm really excited about is churches coming together in radical ways like in in my kind of 20-plus years of being around here, I've never seen the business community, churches, all come together around serving, caring, loving. And I, and I think that sort of builds the platform, and then we have to declare the truth and, and realize it's probably going to be unpopular. And we do have to do some um, platform rebuilding, don't we? Because as you point out in the book, and I quote you here, sexual immorality has become so acceptable even in the church that we've lost our moral distinctive and as a result our platform to share the good news. Well, I mean, it's just it's the reality of you don't live any differently than me. And, and maybe why God put this so deep in my heart was that's why I rejected Christianity. You know, I grew mm. up in the church. I, I watched people live just absolutely uh, lives of duplicity, and it was, forget it, I don't believe any of it. But what, I, what, what gives me hope is I met, uh, you know, my heart was very, you know, into sports, and, you know, I went to school on a basketball scholarship. I got around some athletes who didn't push me. They lived the life. They gave me a New Testament, and they said, read this, ask God if he's really real, read it with an open mind. And they, their lives were the kind that I thought, hey, I, I want to be like them. I want to have relationships like them. They were authentic. They were transparent. When they blew it, they owned it. And they were good. I mean, they were the kind of people that they had excellence. And I think that's the kind of platform the early church had. I think that anytime you see God moving, that's the kind of platform in business and sports and education. And I think that's what has to happen, Christians living like Christians in the church. 
And so this book, what, what, I, what I realize is most people, when these topics come up, are either silent. They don't say anything, either because they don't know what to say, or they realize they're going to be criticized, or they come out so strong and so angry that, you know, we shake our head and we realize, you know, we might agree with some of the content, but the way they're saying it, again, just... Um, removes any platform and basis because it's so unloving. Well, and, and when you take the charity out of this, then all of a sudden you, 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 you set up a combative situation Well, certainly people are immediately going to be not just on the defensive, they'll in fact move into an offensive position. And now you find yourself sort of uh, shrinking back and saying, well, okay, don't want to dare go there because I know what's going to happen. And, and therein lies then the loss that we lose of not just the platform, but the influence that we as the church should have. Uh, and not just to say, let's see what we can do to sprinkle some truth into culture, but in fact to lead the culture. It is the topic of a new book called Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. We're going to take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Pastor Chip Ingram as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Pastor Chip Ingram is with us on this edition of Lifeline. We're talking about his new book, Culture Shock. And Chip, just before the break, we were talking about this this slow slide into moral relativism, um, this abandonment of the sense of absolute truth. And then, of course, we also get into this challenge that the church often faces, as you were alluding to, that we, we either take one or the other, meaning that we either promote the truth without love um, as if it's an either-or, or share love without the truth. And this is not really a case of either-or, is it? It's really both-and. Well, when it's not both-and, it doesn't work at all. And uh, I remember when I was teaching on probably the most controversial subject of homosexuality, uh, the evening we were filming it, because what, it, what I realized was there's a lot of people that are not going to read a book. There's a lot of parents that are not going to bring up these subjects. And so we put it on a small group. A DVD and also just digitally. And so as I went around the country, I met people everywhere who just said, we use these for family devotions, our small group, our Sunday school class. We've never talked about homosexuality in church or human sexuality or cohabitation or politics. And, um, and so that was the passion behind it. But what I can say is the night I was teaching on homosexuality, I mean, you know, we're in the Bay Area and, you know, in Santa Cruz, of course, you know, I lived there 12 years and, you know, had lots of people both in and outside the church, in and out of the lifestyle, and, you know, we had a great ministry, too, and friendships, and talked very openly about those things, and so I was walking, I kind of hang out for 10, 15 minutes just to see who's here, say hi to people, and I walked up to a guy, and he bumped me, and he said, hey, man, this is uh, going to be pretty interesting, and there were some notes, and it said, what do you say to a gay friend? I said, well, why do you say that? He goes, well, I've been in the lifestyle my whole life, and my friend said I should come, so I'm here. So what do you say to gay friend? I'm, a, I'm the gay friend. And, uh, and so anyway, I said, well, where are you from? And we got a conversation. He stood up. We talked for, you know, eight, nine, ten minutes. And I said, well, hey, I'm, would you do me a favor, a huge favor? And he said, I don't know. I mean, we kind of hit it off. I said, when I get done, you're going to listen like few people. And I want to be fair to your position. I'm going to talk about sort of the historic Christian position, and I'm going to talk about, you know, the gay position. And I really want to be fair. I mean, even body language statistics, everything. When I get done, would you come up, because I'm going to do this again tomorrow a couple times, and honestly give me feedback. He looked at me, kind of slouched, and goes, yeah, I'll do that. So anyway, I get done, and you know, I'm wondering if he's going to come up, and so I, I get done with everything, and 
this guy comes up, comes up with his friend, and, and I literally pulled out my pen, and I took the back of my notes, and I said, fire away. I mean, he said, well, let me tell you something. He said, how you started it kind of blew me away. I said, well, how's that? And this gets to your point. He said, well, you started out, and you apologized to the gay and lesbian community. And I thought, man, are you kidding me? I can't believe you did that in church. And then he said, a lot of us don't know much about Christianity, but under this big banner of Christianity, there's these people, and they say they're Christians, and they hold up placards, and they scream and yell, and sometimes they're violent. And, and, and you said they're all, quote, truth with no love, and that is completely different than the way Jesus was. And he said, man, I'm nodding, thinking, yeah, I've seen some of those people. They scare me, actually. He said, but then you said there's people, and they call themselves Christians, and we don't know what's really a Christian, and they say it's okay to live together, it's okay to be married. In fact, some of us are you know, ordained pastors and bishops and all the rest. And, and then you said it's all love, and they want to be caring and accepting. But you said, how loving is it when you know that the average lifespan of a male homosexual in, in the San Francisco Bay Area is age 43? I mean, if I knew someone was doing something that caused them to live maybe 30 years less and didn't tell them, how loving could that be? And he looked at me and goes, I never thought about it that way. So he said, you know, and he gave me some good feedback. And, you know, it was very interesting when I got done. And, you know, as God is always teaching and prompting you. And we got done, and we just had a connection. And I, I started to reach out my hand to shake his hand and thank him. And I realized, you know, the Spirit of God kind of whispered, this guy does not need a handshake. You know, he needs a hug. And I said, man, can I give you a hug? And I did. And, you know, we built a connection there and with his friend. And it was one of those moments I thought, oh, God, your word's powerful. When you really love people, even if you disagree, and, you know, then he began to tell me all of his journey and what he'd been through. And, uh, and what you realize is when you have compassion and you care about people, and now, the, he didn't agree with a lot of what I said. Um, eventually, that ends up being a really wonderful story from, you know, God's kingdom perspective. But what I saw was, you know, Craig, if we can know what we're talking about, if we cannot be threatened, we cannot be defensive, but we have to be bold and courageous and really just, the, the metaphor for me is light, bring light, but people have to sense that you really care about them. And when that happens, I just, I just think a lot of this stuff melts away. So, so you mean that basically sharing this truth in love, a lot like, um, who else? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> You know, it's amazing how we tend to go for it. And we've all had these these conversations or heard these stories. You sit down with a, a non-Christian individual, a friend, an acquaintance, and, and say, well, now, tell me your perspective on what the church is against. And they go through the whole laundry list. The church is against uh, you know, sex outside of marriage and uh, divorce, and the church is against homosexuality and abortion, and on and on the list goes. And they say, okay, now, tell me what the church is for. And there's dead silence. And it's that lack of balance. It's that, that, that sometimes the ability to truth tell but to fail to do so in love or to so in thoroughly embrace the love side of the story that we fail to tell the truth. And yet you look at Jesus, who was ultimately bold in all that he proclaimed when he was active in his ministry on earth. And yet everything that he said was always demonstrated with heartfelt love, demonstrative compassion toward the people that he was interacting with. Look at the woman at the well. Yeah, and I, and I love just, we, sometimes we forget, I think we get intimidated, we forget just how powerful, you know, God's Word is powerful. It's not us. You know, His Word is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division 
of soul and spirit and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts. I mean, the gospel is the power of God's salvation. And I just finished up the book tour at Calvary Chapel at uh, Fort Lauderdale. And it's an amazing church, about 20,000 on the weekend and 10 campuses and a very warm, warm group. And, and um, you know, I, I basically taught through these things. And, of course, they have very much like San Francisco, a huge a gay and lesbian population. And, you know, we just walk through. These are the symptoms. God's not down or angry at people. Here's the issue of truth and why. And if you go back to Genesis, you know, I kind of had this moment that I'd never seen it this way until I was speaking there, and I thought, you know, when before there's any sin, whether it's homosexual sin, heterosexual sin, lying, politics, manipulation, polluting the earth, before there's any sin, the first thing and most precious thing in the world is life. And after God brings life, the next first thing you institute is marriage, a man and a woman, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And then they're to be fruitful, so they have family. And then when families begin to, to multiply, you have life in community. And these communities, if you get enough of them, it's a city. The Greek word for, for a city is polis, but we get our word politics. And then, then lots of cities fill up this place called the earth that's an environment. And I began to see, Craig, like never before, the thread between all of these is about lies. Abortion brings death before it gets started. Sexual immorality, it doesn't matter whether it's homosexual or heterosexual, whether it's cohabitation. I mean, I, and, and there I, said to, I said, how many of you here, okay, let's just talk about this. You're a wife and you found out your husband has a pornography addiction. What did it do to your relationship? You, you're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a guy and you found out your wife had an affair. What did it do to your relationship? Uh, you, you know, were abused as a kid, and you got involved in a homosexual relationship, whatever. But it, it, you just watch it. Life, the institution of marriage, and then when you look at family, and, you know, now we look at kids, pain, death. Every one of these things really are a lie that has caused destruction and separation and pain. And uh, Jesus is the life giver, and his word gives life. And people just need to see ordinary people like you and me love people that they don't think we would love. And we've got to demonstrate it. And um, this book is about getting equipped to do that. Ordinary people. I'm, my prayer is for a grassroots movement of people who read the book, people who share the book, people who do the small group, and then people who are bold in the business place and ask more questions than comments are being defensive. You know, it's just people make these blatant statements, you know, blah, 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 blah. And just be able to say, wow, that is an interesting perspective. I've heard that a lot. And instead of, why do you believe that? Where, where does that go? If we would start asking the questions sort of with the gentleness, what I found is most people will tell you all their stuff and then say, well, well what do you believe and why? And if, if you can articulate clearly, kindly, lovingly, then a dialogue occurs. Doesn't a lot of this, though, Chip, also go back to the importance of the church embracing the truth? And I, and I pose that question because quite often not only do we fail to, to engage another individual, and I was struck by the fact as you shared that story with the gentleman that you spoke to um, during uh, one of your recent trips, that there was a connection between the two of you. And, and sometimes we fail to make that connection, and I think in part because not only do we fail to try to understand the other person, where they're coming from, and why they believe what they believe, but but there's also a sense of intimidation, I think, by many of us in the church, because we know what we believe. We just don't know why we believe it. It's something we've always heard. It's been preached from the pulpit. We've never taken time to go deep enough within God's Word to understand why that is true from God's perspective. 
Oh, you're right. And what I, what I found out on these particular issues, I did, um, you know, God gives me these little promptings. And so I said, okay, if you open the doors, I'll do it. And so all last year, I, I spoke at a bunch of colleges. I mean, bellwether, great evangelical institutions, and then did a couple things with Campus Crusade. And so I was with 20-somethings. I mean, I mean, a lot. And, and then I, when I got there, I would, I would say, how many of you in church, youth group, college, anything, have ever heard a message on the environment? No hands go up. How many have ever heard it on church and politics or what your role is and what the church? No, none. How many people have ever heard a message or had a discussion on homosexuality? Zero. So, you know, on the one hand, how about, how about abortion? You know, okay, four hands go up. Um, how about human sexuality? Yeah, we heard white. <laughs> you, know, but, you, know, and, you know, and so you just want to say, why are we shocked? When we haven't taught in our homes or taught in the church what God has to say, and from God's perspective, that it's good, that it's kind, that He's loving, that it's for your best. Uh, I, you could hear a pin drop when I when I spoke uh, at another place, and I was in Atlanta at a church, and it was a, a lot of young people, and and I just I was trying to kind of give fair. Everyone wants to jump on the homosexual bandwagon. I said I, I'm actually more concerned about cohabitation in the church, you know, and when you and, and I said, now, here's the deal. If you understand, now we have research and science. God cares about us. His, his word and his rules are for our good. Statistically, if you cohabitate, and about 60% of people cohabitate eventually get married. But if you cohabitate, whether you get married or not, 10 years later, here's, here's the studies. One out of 10 couples are still together 10 years later. Wow. And, and, you know, and so I'm saying, so I'm just saying to a group of people, God's not a prude. It's not like he makes up these rules and tries to mess with you or doesn't want you to have sex or all the rest. It's like, here's the game plan. Engineers design things. How? So they work really, really well. God has designed life, relationships, sex, money in a way that it works great. So we shift him out of that role of being the big cosmic killjoy that a lot of people think he is and realize that there's actually purpose behind his plan for us. Yeah, I love the passage in Psalm 84. It was my dating verse when I thought, oh, God, you know, how can I live here? It says, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I just sort of hung on to that and said, well, tell you what, everybody else on the basketball team with four girls to every guy is having an awful lot of fun that I keep hearing about, and it's very hard to be sexually pure. And uh, I look back now after 35 years of marriage and four kids, and I didn't do it perfectly for sure. But, you know, it's, again... God's ways are good. Now, the Lord, the Lord uh, rewarded you with a wonderful woman in Teresa, and uh, and obviously, once again, demonstrative of the fact that if we are faithful to His words and keep His commandments, He will be faithful and will reward us. Chip Ingram, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline, a look at culture shock. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, a look at the difference between warring fractions and warring worldviews as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Back to our conversation with Chip Ingram. He, of course, author of Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. The new book, by the way, published by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area through Amazon.com. And you can also get more information on Chip and the book on his ministry website at livingontheedge.org. That's livingontheedge.org. You call the book Culture Shock. Yet we know that we're in the middle of culture wars. There's a sense of warning worldviews, to be sure. Sadly, though, Chip, as you've been pointing out, we sometimes reduce this down to simply warring people. We see each other as the enemy as opposed to really understanding who the enemy is and what he's done here in terms of leading us, including the church, quite frankly, down this slippery slope away from absolute truth into sort of this dissolving of our moral compass into situational ethics and, and relative truth. The big question is, how do we get back to understanding that there are absolute truths? Well, one, I think we've got to start with our, with our kids and uh, early on. And I think part of it, we need to also understand how we got here. Because this is, I mean, people think this is how the world has always been. This is the way it is. And I think um, for some who enjoy sort of the, the intellectual philosophical journey, which is, you know, I may not be an intellectual, but I love to read and think. And when I see the journey, it's very helpful for me. Then I realize, oh, wow, this is how we got. So I, I listen, I process all the time around our supper table. And, you know, my kids were just, they'd, they'd laugh and sometimes, come on, Dad. You know, I'd pause. Okay, do you understand what's happening in this commercial? What's the presuppositions? What are they telling us? What are the assumptions? Because I wanted them to learn to think. And so I think part of that is it's got to start with us as parents. I think the other thing, um, Craig, is we have got to return to just uh, a, a commitment and a, a zeal and a desire for God's Word. You know, when Jesus was praying about his church, you know, whether people believe in absolute truth or not, um, Jesus said this, you'll know the truth if you abide and apply it, and the truth will set you free. And on the very last night, he prayed, oh, Father, set them apart, make them holy. How? By your word. Your word is truth. And so I think until we get back in the scriptures and not just little diddly devotionals or hearing from a pastor on the weekend, uh, David said, if your word had not been my delight, it would have perished in my affliction. You know, how can a young man keep his way pure? You guard it according to your word. And so I think that we've got, there's got to be a resurgence of commitment to the scripture. I don't think you can take in the scripture and let the spirit of God get it down deep in your soul and still have situational ethics or moral relativism. Well, again, I think that that fervent application of diving into God's Word, studying to show oneself approved of God. I, I'm reminded, Chip, and every once in a while, that I'd love to pull this story out. You probably heard it, too. Um, when he asked the question, well, now, when someone gets a job working for a bank, my goodness, a bank tellers a deal with tens of thousands of dollars across that teller's window every day, and there's so many reports about uh, falsified bills going around and so forth. So how do they learn how to memorize what all those phony bills look like? And and the simple, true answer is they don't teach them what all the false bills look like because there's dozens of them out there. But what they do is they teach them to study what the real bill looks like. And when they study that bill, commit it to heart and to memory, the minute false bill comes across 
their desk, they'll know it. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to truth. If we study to show ourselves approved and we immerse ourselves in God's Word and do so dutifully and fervently when false teaching comes along or, or a competing truth, another something that would present itself as, as another truth comes along, we will know so much about the truth of God's Word hidden in our heart that we'll instantly be able to recognize it and reject it. Well, I really agree with you, and I have to say, you know, I've, I ended up not really intentionally. I always kind of went back and got more education just to get to do the next thing, and my parents were educators, but I never was really all that impressed with education, and I mean, it's been very helpful, and I'm glad I had to learn a bunch of languages, but it was hard, and I didn't really like it a lot, except I like to learn, but here's what I could tell you. Of all the people that have taught me the most, that had the greatest impact, it was a bricklayer in West Virginia with a high school education. And what he did is he helped me develop the habit of making the very first appointment every day to get a great cup of coffee, open your Bible, read systematically, slowly, uh, meditatively, talk with your Heavenly Father, and literally ask Him, you know what's coming today. And beginning to master and read through the Scriptures on a regular basis. And I will tell you, I think that practice has been more helpful than all the Greek and Hebrew and degrees and anything ever. It has been holding on to God's Word, memorizing key passages, hearing God speak to me on a daily basis. And, you know, after the services, you know, I I hang out and, and just talk with people what's going on in their life, Greg. And, you know, a lot of the problems that we get into, we're, we're trying to fill a hole we believe a lie and I most always, I try and do it as gently as possible, and they talk about, you know, I got this addiction, I got that addiction, this has happened, I lost my job, and, you know, this, and I'll just, can I just ask you something, you know, very gently, tell me a little bit about the habitual habit of you being in God's Word. And, and you know, their eyes kind of look at their feet, and, uh, you know, I don't really read the Bible at all. And it's just like, okay, so you have a car, and you put no gas in it, and you just cannot figure out why it's not running at all or running well. And, you know, Jesus said that men won't live by bread, physical alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And again, it's not a legalistic thing. It's not shoving it down people's throat. It's not, you know, telling the kids, sit down, shut up, and I'm going to read 10 chapters to you. <laughs> but it's, it's from the heart, it's life. And um, that's my heart's passion, and uh, I, I would long to just to see those listening to us now to say, you know, what would it look like to block off 15 minutes first thing in the morning? And I, I will tell you what, I don't know what problem, what issue, what challenge. We all have relationship issues. We've got marriage issues, single issues, financial issues, emotional issues. But I will tell you, um, the greatest thing you can do is begin to think God's thoughts after him and uh, a lot of those things amazingly can clear up. A look at Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. A new book, again, published by Baker and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon, and, of course, through the Living on the Edge website at livingontheedge.org. That's livingontheedge.org. Chip Ingram. Chip, as always, brother, a delight and a privilege to have you on the program. Look forward to visiting with you again real soon. Well, thank you, and we are so deeply grateful. Actually, many people may not know that I think the second station we ever 
we're ever on with thanks to KFAX and the journey with you guys and God has really blessed us and we're very very grateful. So All right, well we appreciate it. We'll do. You do the same and the, we appreciate the partnership in the ministry. There's Chip Ingram. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.